There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Tortoise. The Palace of Westminster sits on the banks of the River Thames in London, the looming Gothic home to the British Parliament. And if you've walked along the embankment or crossed Waterloo Bridge linking the north and the south of the city, you've no doubt looked over to it and marvelled. From afar, it is a perfect symbol, both a home and an icon of British democracy, both ancient and imposing. But up close, it looks very different. Up close, you can see the cracks you see the bits held together with tape. It looks much more vulnerable. And unless you know where to look, rooms and corridors are nearly impossible to navigate. It is a warren. And the story we're telling you this week is like that. It's a story about British politics and about an arcane system that looks very different up close once you get inside it. One full of cracks about the uneasy relationship between money, gifts and power. Let me start with a figure, 183 million. That's the amount of money that's flowed into Parliament since the last general election in 2019. And that's a number that has been very difficult for us to get. Whether through default or design, the records of financial transactions from donors and companies to British politicians, essentially the records of who is funding our politics, is a warren of data spread across different websites and platforms, some published online, some in print, some in PDFs and spreadsheets, in formats that can't be compared or analysed easily. And it means that the figures of what our MPs are earning outside of their parliamentary salaries are hard to find. And not just that, they're difficult to trace and therefore easy to obscure. But making sense of this system, stepping inside it and looking up close, is what our reporters at Tortoise, in partnership with Sky News, have been doing for months. And in a new project, The Westminster Accounts, we reveal a British political system that is vulnerable to abuse, open to efforts to buy influence, to secure access and to enrich MPs. And so this week, we're actually not telling you one story, but five Five stories from an immense data collection that together illustrate the ways in which our MPs and our political system are biddable. I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. 
This week, the Westminster Accounts, a story in five parts. Let me introduce you to Kat Nealon, who is the political editor at Tortoise. Hello, Kat. Hi, Basha. So, Kat, with a team of reporters, you've been crunching through an enormous data set to understand what it tells us about how British politics really works. And each of the stories illustrates something different about MPs, about lobbying, access, foreign influence, and the lack of transparency when it comes to donors. That's right. So, in all of that, where do we start? Well, where I want to start is with a story about a former prime minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I refer members to my entry in the Members' Register. I refer the House to my entry in the Members' Register. I refer the House to my entry in the Members' Register. Mr Speaker, I refer the House to my entry in the Members' Register. And I refer the House to my entry in the Members' Register. That's right, Theresa May. Almost three months after her final day as Prime Minister, Theresa May set up the Office for Theresa May Limited, a private limited company. As Prime Minister, she wasn't allowed to take on any outside paid work. But things were different after she resigned. As a backbench MP, she was freed from those shackles and eyed up lucrative public speaking opportunities. We know she gave several to banks, such as JP Morgan. In other cases, it's less clear who she was speaking to. Theresa May declared just over £408,000 from the Cambridge Speakers series, having given six speeches last spring. She's the only MP to have registered any payments from this firm, which is based in California, When we checked it out, it doesn't really seem to have much of a presence online. It looks like the speeches are given to various universities in the States, but precisely to whom and on what topic isn't clear because it isn't declared. And we tried to get hold of people, but we weren't able to. For an engagement with another company, Boston Speaker Series, the website describes the contents of her speech in a typically vague way. Mrs May gives an incisive examination and unique insight about how politics, technology and business intersect at a time of profound global change. Sharing lessons from her experiences over a storied career, she encourages listeners to recapture the spirit of common purpose in order to achieve progress across the world. There are two other US-based speaking agencies there too, who have both paid Theresa May six-figure sums since 2019. Again, precisely who she was speaking to and what was said is unclear. Okay, but I guess you could say good on her. People at the top of their professions, even people in the public sector, get paid much more than the Prime Minister. So I suppose some people might think what harm is done if she's speaking on a tour of the college circuit in the US after she's left office? Sure, and that's kind of the view of certainly her Conservative colleagues. But Theresa May's income from speaking is now roughly 10 times more than her salary as an MP. So the question we have been asking is, is that a conflict of interest, divided loyalties, or just a case of trying to be in two places, doing two jobs at once? And part of the way we've tried to answer this is by creating a tool, available now to everyone, which lets us do something that MPs might find uncomfortable. We can create leaderboards and league tables, showing where the largest sums flow from and to whom in British politics. So we can now tell you that while the majority of MPs have no outside earnings, there are some, mostly Conservatives, who significantly out-earn their parliamentary salary. In fact, 34 MPs have earned more than £100,000 since the start of 2020. Currently, at the top of that leaderboard is, yes, Theresa May. 
By the end of 2022, her outside earnings totaled £2.5 million. It's also significantly more than she earned as a Prime Minister and dwarfs her salary as an MP. Another, more controversial speech was one she gave to the World Travel and Tourism Council in Saudi Arabia in November, for which she earned just over £100,000. On her register, the place where MPs must declare their outside interests, she makes no mention of where she gave that talk, although it was proudly trumpeted by the organisers at the time. Theresa May was, of course, Prime Minister when the journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. She condemned this at the time. We condemn the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the strongest possible terms. And after his disappearance, we made clear that Saudi Arabia must cooperate with Turkey and conduct a full and credible investigation. But was criticised for maintaining a warm relationship with the regime. And it would appear that relationship has continued. But as I say, her story is just one of dozens. And actually, I think I can guess who you're going to tell me about next. Well, yes, you probably can guess. His name is never far from our lips. (laughs) Boris Johnson. You might remember when he was stepping down, it was reported that he said he wanted to spend his time making stacks of cash. And thanks to a handful of speeches he gave late last year, he does now look set to overtake Theresa May at the top of the earnings leaderboard, perhaps as soon as this week. And who else is on that leaderboard? Well, as at the end of 2022, the top five earners, all Conservatives, between Theresa May and Boris Johnson, is the former Attorney General Geoffrey Cox, who we mentioned earlier, he earned £2.2 million. In fourth place, it's Fiona Bruce, MP for Congleton, who earned £711,000 through legal work. And then John Redwood, just shy of £693,000. But while Tories definitely dominate the league table, they are certainly not alone. Enter David Lammy. That's the Labour frontbencher, Shadow Foreign Secretary no less. David Lammy plays a key role in Keir Starmer's administration at a critical time for foreign policy and for Labour. But while his counterpart in the government, James Cleverley, is prohibited from taking on second jobs, David Lammy is busy giving speeches and doing a regular show on LBC Radio. Altogether, over the last three years, he has earned just over £200,000, making him the highest-earning Labour MP and 12th in our House of Commons league table. There is no suggestion of wrongdoing, but it does seem at odds with the Labour position of banning MPs' second jobs. Even when we do know where the cash has come from, there are questions about what each party is getting out of the arrangement. Take Sir John Hayes, for example. When it comes to just earnings, stripping out donations, he is seventh in the league table, having earned £328,000. He's a former energy minister who earns £50,000 as a strategic advisor for BB Energy, a Lebanese energy trader. But John Hayes is also the chairman of the Lebanon APPG. That's an all-party parliamentary group. More on that later. This was resurrected around the same sort of time that he started working for BB Energy. And that's not all. He also sits on the Intelligence and Security Committee, which, as the name suggests, is concerned with the UK's intelligence agencies. But listen, all of these connections might just be coincidence. John Hayes wouldn't speak to us on the record, although I should say his role with the Lebanese energy company was given the green light by the government watchdog. Still, the overlap in his responsibilities raises questions over the wisdom of MPs holding second jobs in the first place. Can constituents be confident that their MP is prioritising their interests over the interests of the people and companies who pay them? (laughs) 
There was a lot happening at the end of 2022. A new British government had collapsed within seven weeks over a budget that crashed the economy. Energy bills were soaring. Strikes were bringing the country to a standstill. It was suddenly very, very cold. But there was football, a silver lining, the World Cup in Qatar. And so the Gulf state was getting a lot of attention. Only it turns out that it wasn't all thanks to the beautiful game. Let me take you back to the spring of 2022 when something curious happened in Parliament. The Liaison Committee, a powerful committee which scrutinises the government, were questioning Boris Johnson. There were lots of questions, many of them about Partygate, remember that? And Ukraine was in the early throes of fending off Russia's invasion and the cost of living crisis was just beginning to emerge which is where a Conservative MP called Sir Bill Wiggin comes in. We have on at least three occasions promised the Qataris visa-free access. These are very wealthy people who are unlikely to stay. And yet, despite saying we do it three times, we still haven't delivered. And I'm really worried, Prime Minister, that everything you've said to us today, I actually want to happen, but it isn't happening. And the only people who are turning up turn up in rubber boots. Why can't we get the right people through our immigration system instead of the wrong ones? Well, um, so you, and you, and you, if I understand you correctly, Bill, what you're saying is why are we being so... Why can't the, the, can't the, the Qataris and other Gulf countries have visa-free access? Well, we want Ukrainians, we want Qataris, okay, and we got don't you. want people in rubber boats. No, well, I, that we're not getting the, it. Kat, what made this such a curious intervention for you? So... Bill Wigan has a seat on the Liaison Committee because he's the chair of another, the Committee on Selection, which nominates MPs to sit on other committees that scrutinise legislation. That is a lot of committees. It is. But the Liaison Committee you can kind of think of as like a super committee. Bill Wigan has been in Parliament since 2001 and he has been sitting on the backbenches since the Tories came to power. But here he is carrying out a vitally important function, holding the Prime Minister of the day to task – the Liaison Committee is the only committee that has the power to actually summon the Prime Minister and ask him direct questions. And it's important to remember this moment. The political and economic situation is fraught. Boris Johnson is under mounting pressure. I was watching along with much of the political press. But what happened wasn't what we were expecting. We have on at least three occasions promised the Qataris visa-free access. So here is Bill Wiggin asking the Prime Minister about visa-free access for the Qataris. It was just so out of keeping with the rest of the session. I immediately went to his register of interests to see what was there. And lo and behold, he had not long returned from a trip to Qatar, funded by them, to the tune of £2,740, which he didn't declare during this back and forth. A month or so before, the Gulf state had hosted its annual Doha Forum, an event that it says brings together leaders in policy to discuss how to tackle global challenges. And among the attendees was the backbench MP, Bill Wigan alongside several other MPs and what has been described to me as opinion formers, whoever they might be. This was just one of many trips to Doha that British politicians were invited on ahead of the World Cup. In fact, Qatar has spent nearly £250,000 on trips and other hospitality, making it the fourth biggest source of cash for MPs, despite a ban on politicians receiving donations or loans from foreigners. OK, so how was that done if it's against the rules? Well, this isn't actually against the rules. There's something of a loophole that incredibly allows MPs to receive thousands of pounds from foreign donors, and it's all perfectly above board. I'll get to that in a minute. 
As we know, Qatar has been seeking influence for a while. Do you remember the story about the suitcase of cash being given to the then Prince of Wales, now our king? That was the Qataris, or the more recent scandal of bags of cash in Brussels. They do deny it, but let's just say it's not called Qatargate for nothing. But in Parliament, the action centres on the All-Party Parliamentary Group, or APPG, which acts as an unofficial link between Westminster and Doha. Now, a little explainer here. APPGs are informal, cross-party groups that have no official status in Parliament and don't directly affect legislation. They also have hardly any scrutiny or oversight. They're designed to further understanding across all parties and in both houses about a particular subject, often a passion project for whoever is the chairperson. Crucially, APPGs can accept donations from foreign sources. Okay, so that's the loophole. Precisely. But because there's no oversight, they're very difficult to keep tabs on. Hundreds have been set up, more than there are MPs, in fact. And many have hardly any members. Sometimes an MP will just grab their mate on the way to the committee corridor so that they can hit the threshold and create these things. The APPG on Qatar, a few months ahead of World Cup, becomes suddenly highly coveted. The number of MPs has risen to 17, And there was quite a scrap for the chairmanship too. Several sources have told me that Doha was involved in directing the change in chairmanship. It was a Liberal Democrat MP and then it became a Conservative one. One source even told me that Doha had made it clear it was preferable for the group to be chaired by a Tory. Another said that while Qatar had been instrumental in the change... Somebody back here had put them up to it. Somebody had spoken to the foreign ministry in Doha. I was told it was an MP. Whoever that MP was, the role eventually fell to Alan Cairns, although only after fending off stiff competition from a rival Tory, something he later boasted of to another one of my sources. Now, Alan Cairns, former Welsh Secretary, has praised Qatar both at a drinks reception and in a Westminster Hall debate, in which he focused on the progress made on topics like LGBTQ plus rights and workers' conditions. But I would also encourage peop- uh, 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 colleagues, uh, uh, honourable and right honourable members, to look at the progress that has taken place. Now, that is not to say that we have arrived at a destination, nor has any other developed economy arrived at a destination, because it's an ever-evolving uh, uh, situation. Um, and also, I would encourage colleagues to actively participate in the all-party parliamentary group on Qatar, so that we can continue to raise these issues in the positive spirit that both the Minister uh, and I have said because of our deep relationship where we can ask uh, uh, tough questions and can receive strong answers and uh, and that works uh, in a positive way. So let me return to Bill Wigan, the man tasked with scrutinising the then Prime Minister but choosing to raise Qatari visas. He's not actually a member of the Qatari APPG, although you don't have to be to go on these visits and his fellow attendees at the Doha Forum were, including Alan Cairns. One fellow attendee told me... It amused me that these Tory liggers were all out for a freebie and didn't show much interest in the Doha Forum at all. It seemed to me they were enjoying the hospitality, but most of them seemed to be backbench retreads looking for a Qatari sugar daddy. There are lots of names and groups, I know, and I know it's confusing and hard to follow, but that's part of the story that we found. Trying to trace influence is a delicate thing. You might say it's not surprising that Qatar tried to enhance its influence in the world ahead of the World Cup, but its reach into Westminster is troubling. Two sources told Tortoise that a former government advisor appeared to be working for the Qataris on the parliamentary estate 
One said he had been offering tickets to the football tournament to pretty much anybody under the sun, along with an introduction to the Qatari ambassador. The story of Bill Wiggin and Qatar is just one of many stories of foreign entities seeking a route into Westminster. Let me tell you about another man, Bob Blackman, a Conservative MP. It emerged recently that he had boasted of being fed propaganda by Azerbaijan. Blackman, who is chair of the Azerbaijan APPG, has taken seven free trips worth tens of thousands of pounds to oil-rich Azerbaijan since 2011. The three most recent trips were paid for by either the Azerbaijani parliament or its London embassy. Bob Blackman wrote to two foreign secretaries, Dominic Raab and Liz Truss, urging them to strengthen ties with Azerbaijan. He's also tabled four pro-regime motions in the House of Commons. That's not even the most egregious example. Take this truly astonishing moment from last year when MI5 issued an alert warning parliamentarians to avoid a woman called Christine Lee. How did this alleged agent of the Chinese Communist Party gain influence at the heart of British democracy? Christine Lee, a Chinese lawyer living in London, has spent years and hundreds of thousands of pounds trying to interfere in UK politics, and she has managed to rub shoulders with prime ministers, party leaders and other influential figures. But today, MI5 issued a major security alert. Why? She was, quote, knowingly engaged in political interference activities on behalf of a division of the Chinese Communist Party. She was, in other words, a spy. But why is she relevant here? Well, this was apparently a spy who had, along with Labour MP Barry Gardner, helped to set up, you guessed it, the Chinese in Britain APPG. These individuals have privileged access to MPs and ministers and are able to speak to, perhaps even influence, some of our country's top decision makers. They're also able to pass that information back home. I speak to Transparency International's Steve Goodrich on why this matters. What we've seen is some rather unsavoury regimes notorious for corruption and human rights abuses paying like very generous <laughs> packages for MPs and lords to go abroad. Now, you know, it's quite astonishing some of the figures involved. You might see an MP who is paid, you know, maybe we've seen up to £10,000 holiday, essentially, is what it looks like, to go on a fact-finding trip to a particular country or, you know, Regularly, you see some of these jurisdictions, very unsavoury, um, who are paying like you know tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of pounds on MPs and lords to go abroad and you know discover the wonders of what's happening in that place. When it comes to APPGs, I want to end on a final important point. It's about secretariats. Sorry, I know that's another boring word for you to take on, but these are the groups or individuals who manage the APPGs. It's kind of a back office role, but they're important as they can often set the entire agenda for a group. In some cases, they're managed by consultancies or lobbying firms. Labour MP Chris Bryant, who chairs the Standards Committee, has said MPs should run a mile from such APPGs. But this is a self-policing area of policy. Really, anyone could be a secretariat. In the case of Qatar's group, it was for a while run by a hedge fund. No one from the APPG has ever responded to my questions about why. No one from the hedge fund returned my calls. No one from Doha did either. And shortly after I started making inquiries, the hedge fund in question, Argo Capital, was dropped from the APPG's register. It's very difficult to give a concrete explanation about what is going on. But at the very least, I think the question should be asked. Why was a hedge fund involved in the running of a parliamentary group with links to Qatar? 
Do you remember back in the thick of the pandemic when it seemed like week after week, nearly day after day, a new scandal broke about government contracts? It seemed like anyone who knew a government minister, down to the local pub owner, could land some enormous contract for masks or hospital gowns or medical gloves with just the right access. And this is, in many ways, the starkest issue that comes from our Westminster Accounts investigation. We've talked about foreign influence and about the Atari money and Theresa May's lucrative speaking gigs. But the vast majority of cash flowing into Westminster comes from within, from British companies, donors and people. It is really a story that's hidden in plain sight. Yeah, I'd start to declare that my wife owns a communication consultancy who have clients that regular, regularly deal with NICE. So Kat, this is, I think, the bit where you tell me about the fine line between influence and lobbying, right? It very much is. And really, I want to tell you about one man, Paul Bristow. Paul Bristow is the Conservative MP for Peterborough. He sits on the Health and Social Care Select Committee. As part of that, he gets to question the potential chair of the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, better known as NICE. NICE provides national guidance to the government on health and social care. Now, Paul Bristow's wife owns a consultancy that often deals with NICE. It's called Healthcoms but Healthcoms was previously called PB Consulting, owned and run by Paul Bristow himself. It changed hands from husband to wife after Paul Bristow was elected as MP for Peterborough, but the company was very much his baby. Healthcoms works with six APPGs, including five health-related ones, and thanks to our investigation, we now know that it is the named source of more than £700,000 of donations and gifts flowing into Westminster in the current Parliament. Its contributions, and therefore influence, have steadily increased over the years. The data shows the company to be one of the largest individual funders of APPGs. And they are by no means the only firm doing this. So far in this Parliament, corporations and interested parties have given more than £20 million to domestic APPGs. Most of those funders are registered lobbyists, explicitly taking money from private clients to influence policy, and they're finding that APPGs are a great way to do that. But if APPGs have no formal status, how exactly does this help companies influence policy? Well, this is the reason why the story of Healthcoms is so interesting. There is a line that we can draw from their influence to actual policy decisions made in Parliament. And to understand this, I need to tell you something about a very niche-sounding APPG. It's called the Vascular and Venous APPG. Let me take you back to 2018. NICE, that health body I mentioned, had issued new draft guidelines recommending a move away from a technique called EVAR, which is a minimally invasive surgery. The NICE draft guidelines were recommending a move away from EVAR in treating abdominal aortic aneurysms, which is a bulge in the main blood vessel running from your heart to your tummy. NICE was saying, we recommend you use open surgery instead. The problem is, there's a lucrative industry around EVAR and the devices it uses, And in fact, the medical device companies, including those who manufacture and sell EVAR devices, have donated more than £300,000 to the Vascular and Venus APPG since 2016. But that's not all. These companies also pay Healthcoms Grants, that company once owned by the Conservative MP Paul Bristow, now owned by his wife. Later, once the final guidelines were published, Paul Bristow highlighted the issue in Parliament, asked a question about EVAR and its use in the NHS. 
When asked, Paul Bristow said the question was one of many he asked on different surgery procedures and was designed to demonstrate how routine NHS surgery has been impacted by COVID-19. It all sounds quite close to me. Well, it is. You're right. So this APPG, Vascular and Venus, received significant donations from companies with a vested interest in keeping EVAR the recommended clinical procedure. And the secretariat for the APPG is funded by those same companies. So what happened next? Well, when NICE proposed the move from EVAR towards open surgery, these companies stood to lose money. And inevitably, they took action. According to HealthCom's own website, MPs and peers engaged with ministers and officials from NICE to block these changes. Tortoise has seen letters from at least two members of the Vascular and Venus APPG opposing the changes to the guidelines, including to the then Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. One actually used parliamentary-headed notepaper, in other words, giving the impression of official parliamentary business. That might seem like a small matter, but APPGs are explicitly not official parliamentary business. The chair of NICE's guideline committee, Professor Andrew Bradbury, complained that he had received letters on fancy pants papers and told Tortoise that he only subsequently became aware that MPs and Lords were close to industry. Some months later, NICE rode back and moved away from their suggested changes. And Healthcoms won an award for its campaign. But could there be a medical reason that MPs felt strongly in favour of EVA? That is the broad thrust of the response from those we've contacted. The problem is, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. Do MPs join certain APPGs because they feel strongly about the issue and it's just a happy meeting of minds? Or are they persuaded of the views held by the corporate backers? MPs would no doubt argue the former, that they really care. But presumably the companies believe otherwise. Why else would they pump millions of pounds into these things? What's the payoff for them? You could say that influence is the word of the last decade. Indeed, an entire economy has sprung up around it online. Just think about social media and that delicate tightrope 
Who pays for influence? How is it declared? What's authentic and what isn't? It's been a debate raging now as Instagram and TikTok have become woven into our everyday lives. Does that celebrity really love that brand of tea? Or are they just paid to say that? Well, I think the stories of the Westminster accounts are kind of similar because it's an investigation that reveals how a web of paying outside interests, foreign and domestic, can seek to shift the weight of public debate and even policy. It's the political equivalent of branded tea. Does that MP really think that? Or have they been paid or influenced to say it? Who really has the ear of our politicians really matters, because knowing how and why decisions are made is vital in a democratic system. And this next story is an extension of this. It's about how our politicians benefit from the money flowing in their direction. It is a rather sunny story about perks. Uh, during the festive uh, season, I've been thinking about Prime Minister basking in his hammock and mustique, uh, maybe contemplating his mandate. But the, the... <laughs> Do you remember this? It caused quite a stir. Back in 2019, Boris Johnson, then the Prime Minister, and his partner, now wife, Carrie Johnson, had gone on holiday to Mustique. It was a £14,000 trip paid for by a Tory donor. Of course, with power and profile come perks. But it caused a controversy. Was it right? Was it appropriate? But they aren't the only ones to seek out the perks of being in the political spotlight. And this next story, Kat, that you're going to tell us is a pretty revealing tale about the, let's say, benefits of being an MP. That's one way to put it. Let me tell you about David Morris. David Morris is a Conservative MP for Morecambe and Lonsdale. Now, it's unlikely most people will have heard of him. He's been an MP for a long time, since 2010, but he's never held a ministerial position, nothing to catapult him into the spotlight. But inside Westminster, he has a nickname, and it's not a great one. It's Air Miles Morris. And that's because, as you might have guessed, David Morris has built up a reputation as being a frequent flyer, and his story also has something of a romantic arc to it. In September 2018, David Morris registered a six-day visit to the Maldives for himself and his parliamentary assistant, who also happened to be his romantic partner, Emma Smith. The trip was worth £8,966 and was gifted by the Maldives Election Commission to help monitor the country's presidential election. So far, OK. It was one of six registered overseas trips that the couple took that year. Others include Turkey, Azerbaijan, Gibraltar and Armenia. In total, the couple spent 31 days out of the country, always together, at a registered cost of £21,563. Now, many of these trips took place during recess, by which I mean when Parliament isn't sitting, and David Morris might have had some free time, but not all of them. We know that he did miss some sitting days, including during one of those trips to Turkey. And just a few days after the couple returned from an Armenian trip, David Morris posted on Facebook that they were engaged. A year later... And a few weeks after the couple visited Turkey once again, they announced that they had got married. So why does this matter? Well, it's an insight into the perks available to backbench MPs if they want them. Foreign trips, hospitality. In the case of David Morris, 28 days away in the sun with his girlfriend, now wife. And they're not the only ones. The partners and staffers of three other Conservative MPs have also racked up the air miles, totalling more than 35 trips between them since 2016. I should say, this isn't normal, but neither is it against the rules. 
So what does this story tell us, Kat? What should we conclude about these trips abroad? MPs going on all-expenses-paid trips is nothing new. And to be honest, when we were reporting this story, the reaction in Westminster to some of what we found was a collective shrug of the shoulders. It was ever thus, and really, where's the harm? But this attitude and the presumption that because it's declared it is somehow transparent has allowed a pattern of behaviour to emerge that at the very least begs the question, how much time is being spent on MP work? For the final chapter in our story of the Westminster accounts, I want to end with Owen Patterson's resignation and on a story about donors. Judged guilty of the most serious breaches of Parliament's lobbying rules, but now neither the Commons nor the voters will decide Owen Patterson's fate. He has quit as an MP, leaving chaos in his wake, protesting his innocence to the end. I hope no other MP goes through the horrors that I and my family have been through. The Conservative MP Owen Patterson's paid work from a company called Randox, a health and diagnostics company, seemed to change government policy during the pandemic. At the time, the government argued that this was out of necessity, but it seems that ties between donors and who gets contracts extends far beyond COVID. And Kat's been looking at a story about one company in particular that shines a light into the murky world of political donors. We're used to thinking of donors in terms of recognisable names, trade unions in the case of Labour, big business in the case of the Tories. But in our investigation, some names keep cropping up about whom very little is known. One such name is IX Wireless, a telecoms firm operating out of Blackburn. Its mission, it claims, is to provide access to high-speed broadband in towns and cities across the northwest and beyond. It was set up in 2017, and its aims to reach more than 4 million households by 2025. That's two years from now. So far, so good. It sounds like the sort of ambitious startup that could help revitalise communities, level up, if you will. An exciting new company, exactly the sort of thing that the government's Northern Powerhouse Initiative would want to support. But it's not a quite a clear-cut story. Because this is really about a company in hot water, who no one really knows much about donating significant sums to a string of Conservative MPs. Basha, let me tell you first about IX Wireless's problems. During the course of my reporting, I found that it was fined after carrying out unauthorised work, accused of bullying locals into having 15-metre masts erected near to their homes, that it has dragged MPs who accepted donations into a row over those masts, and that it was ordered to remove masts erected in Stockport that it had put up without permission. And there's more to it than that. The ownership structure of IX Wireless is very unusual. It makes it hard for us and for those who are receiving donations to know who's behind it. What we've managed to establish is that it was originally owned by a Jersey-based business, run by, amongst others, a Dubai-based businessman, Tahir Mosan. Once named one of Britain's richest young entrepreneurs, several of his companies abruptly fell into administration in the mid-noughties. Not much has been heard from him since. There are a string of other companies that are now linked to IX Wireless, but Tahir Mosan appears to remain the ultimate owner. There's another thing about the accounts that's a little odd. It shows that in 2018, the firm made a loss of 655000 and registered net assets of just £4,669. But just a year later, it had net assets of £14.6 million, and by 2020, 
it had total equity of 28.5 million. That's a huge increase. Okay, but how did that happen? It's not really clear. Also, the company doesn't appear exactly flush. A source told us that IX Wireless's office was virtually derelict, so we went on our own visit. Here's what Michelle found. For the purposes of this story, we'll call her Tortoise's Blackburn correspondent. So it's a grey morning in Blackburn. I'm sat outside some very heavy-duty black industrial gates, which are the entrance to Ribble Business Park. There's a very shiny new padlock on those gates. In the distance is a probably 1960s multi-storey building. It looks semi-derelict. I'm told by the security guard in the next business part, that is Ribble House. There's no signage for any companies in that building. There is signage for a different company in a separate building, but this certainly looks to be uninhabited. In addition, we found via an FOI request that it received over £600,000 in government funding taxpayers' money, that is, received it around the same time it was donating to Tory MPs. In general, those who have received donations from IX Wireless have been reluctant to speak to us. Those who did pointed out to me that IX was a permitted donor, which simply means it's UK registered. Christian Wakeford, who is now a Labour MP, told me that he had received cash through intermediaries, senior Tories heading up the Northern Research Group, and initially had no idea where the money came from. He told me, The first I ever heard of IX Wireless is when I was told, this is something you need to put on the register of interest for compliance purposes. This was all I ever heard of them. With this story, I keep coming back to something I was told by another Conservative MP a few months back. Tom Tugendhat, who is now the security minister, said that his attitude to receiving donations was, just because you can doesn't mean you should. That conversation was actually about concerns that he and some of his colleagues had about the influx of Russian money going into the Tory party. But it's a good rule that can and probably should be applied more generally. He's not alone in those thoughts, but as we have shown repeatedly with these stories, it's certainly not the consensus view. If you've made it this far, let me say congratulations. These are complicated stories, they're hard to follow and they involve lots of names and companies and countries and that, in the end, I suppose is the whole point. I'm not saying that lightly. It shouldn't be this difficult. It should be simple. We should be able to easily track the money flowing into our politics, whether directly to politicians or to parliamentary groups. That's the whole point of transparency. Without it, how can we know if or when things are going wrong? How can we know when money changes the balance of politics and of policy? Well, with this investigation, we've started to find out. And now, so can you. I would urge you all to go and explore the tool that my colleagues have built. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Westminster dash accounts dash explore. It allows you to search for your local MP or indeed any MP that you're interested in to find out what money they've received and from who. This episode was written by Kat Nealon, Matt Russell and me, Basha Cummings. The reporters on the Westminster accounts, a major collaboration with Sky News, were Paul Caruana Galizia, Phoebe Davis, Luke Benemer, Sebastian Hervis-Jones, Alice Horrell, Barney McIntyre, Katie Riley, Guy Taylor, Jeevan Vassagar and Joe White. 
The producer of this episode of the Slow Newscast was Matt Russell and the sound designer was Tom Birchall. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, you like our stories, you like our investigations and you want to support us and you want to get more of what we do, then you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thank you and I'll see you next week. Tortoise. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.